Coming up in this podcast, FIFO harassment, Gouda Dairy opening, Waterbank, construction overview, Fleur and Clough contracts, Crown, Nicole Wook Lockwood, Mike McKenna, Pumped Hydro and Education Feature. Welcome to Mark My Words, the weekly podcast from Business News with Mark Pownall and Mark Byer discussing the important business news and data stories from Western Australia. Welcome to our weekly podcast. This episode of Mark My Words is brought to you by Dr David Honey, WA Liberal Leader and the member for Cottesloe. And welcome Mark Byer. First up, Mark, the report into sexual harassment in the mining sector landed yesterday. Enough is enough, which was quite a... uh a catchy title for the report, uh, chaired by Libby Metham, a Liberal Member of Parliament, um, through her parliamentary committee. And it was a report that really shone a light on the issue of sexual harassment and sexual assault in the mining industry. Uh, Some quite appalling revelations. Uh, A lot of women very bravely came forward and gave testimony before the committee and it's really, I guess, shone a light and highlighted the issue here, but also triggered a lot of discussion about the scale of the problem, um, how much it extends across industry, and where we go from here. Yeah. So one of the points that Libby Metham herself made was that it's very hard to ascertain the scale of the problem because there isn't any reliable data um, I've looked at this issue in the past, and there was that landmark Respect at Work report that came out at a national level. There are some surveys that look at um, sexual harassment and so on by industry, um, but not very reliable at all. Um, The mining industry has about 150,000 people in Western Australia, very big employer, um, very blokey, in many cases working in remote locations, these FIFO camps. Um, So, I guess where I sit, no real surprise that they discovered that there are significant problems in the industry. Yeah. And I guess, Mark, I mean, there's been a cultural change in there in the sense that women have become a greater presence in the workplace up there. Uh, Well, we say up there, but generally speaking, it's to the north of Perth. Um, And that's happened over, what, the last 20 years predominantly, or especially the last 10 for a bunch of reasons, right? Like, A, they need more people up there and um, and they've been trying to get some diversity up there, haven't they? Yeah. And look, I've heard anecdotally from people that where you get a, a sufficient number of women, that starts to change the culture of a work camp yeah. or, or a mining location. But, you know, there are very few locations where it's more than just a few percent uh, that are female. Yeah. Um, and I guess you get that outcome of... Um, you know, like, uh, oh, well, it's change. And potentially, as you say, you're not shocked by this. And yet, you know, it's a, it's a, cha- it's a period of change. I mean, you, you would think it would have had to have been expected, wouldn't you? Yes. And, and I think, too, just this, this broader social movement, I suppose, or, or social trend where people um, are more focused on it yep. and women do feel more empowered to speak out about it. Yeah, right. You know, that was always one of the big issues in the past. Um, And in fact, there were some very good examples um, that came through the report where uh, when some women came forward, that encouraged others to come forward. Yeah, naturally. Um, And you got more evidence about the scale of the problem. So in terms of where to from here, uh, the report had about 24 recommendations. Uh, One was uh, 
a more methodical approach to the reporting of incidents mm-hmm. uh, so we understand what's going on. Uh, another one was a register of uh, perpetrators of sexual harassment and then trying to sort of ban them from the industry. Now, I know people in the industry have talked about, said, good idea, but we're not quite sure how that works. Yep. So we'll have to wait and see on that one. Um, just getting sort of better standards across the industry in terms of accommodation, CCTV, lighting and so on in the camps, uh, better data collection at a, by the regulator, by WorkSafe, because uh, there was certainly a big focus on the fact that the regulator wasn't doing a lot in this space in the past. And then this bigger issue around how we define sexual harassment, because mm. uh, there's a whole spectrum of things, um, and we need to have a really open debate about what is or isn't acceptable. Yeah, it's challenging, isn't it? I mean, I guess you've got, firstly, the reason why this is the the mining industry and a regulator involved is because it's camps and it's, it's not your normal life, right? Um, but... You know, I'm really split here because you've got two different things going on here. You've got harassment, which can be all sorts of things. And, you know, I I imagine it's going to be really challenging to create a register of people who harass if they haven't done anything that's illegal, if you know what I mean. I mean, workplaces, normal workplaces have that problem too, you know. Um, So that will be the first challenge. Uh, And I imagine people who get on that register might want to challenge their rights as you know be challenged to their rights as well and then you flip it onto the other side and if if it's someone's done something illegal then why aren't the police involved at the first instance and has there been enough of that and we've seen that in you know mark a lot of other institutions have gone through this (laughs) uh, in the in recent decades around the fact that you know the police weren't brought in early enough so you know i i find and, and i'm not sure that the report recommendations get to the heart of those two issues, do they? Look, not really, no. They, um, they, they sort of touch on it, I think, yeah. but don't really get into the detail. Uh, I thought Nicole Jenkins, uh, Chair of the Chamber of Commerce and Industry, made a good contribution to the debate uh, with a couple of points that she made. I mean, one was to highlight the fact that this is a whole-of-society problem. You know, it's not unique to mining. So there's sort of a broader issue here across industries and it's both, you know, it's employers, it's unions, it's government. So everyone has a role to play here. Yeah. And then the other point she said is that from the members of CCI talk about the fact of how hard it is to deal with these things, and in particular the unfair dismissal laws. And so they say that you know, where businesses do have a case and they want to do something about it, it's actually quite hard for them to do so. Yeah. So they called for some law reform in that area so that it's easier for employers to dismiss people who have been found to be harassing and bullying other people in the workplace. Yeah. But I guess the problem then goes around, do they just move on to another site? And that's where I think it's most fraught and where the industry could, you know, as an industry, offer the most. And yet, again, like I say, it's fraught because what are you, you know, if someone's been labelled something and they get on a register... You've got to be pretty clear that you're being, you know, it's not a court, is it? Um, so that's where I kind of go, gee, that's a big challenge, I think, to get that to get that setting right. Uh, all right. And now, um, Mark, you were up at the official opening of Rio's Gudadari Mine. Uh, I guess, first of all, was that sub- did that subject come up at that opening? It certainly did. Um, and it 
you know, it, it can't be avoided. Um, Simon Trott, who heads up Rio's iron ore business, um, he spoke about it in his presentation. Um, and in fact, he showcased the camp at Goodadari. So right. this is, you know, I guess, uh, best in class. It's brand new. And he talked about the, the layout of the village and things like the lighting and the security cameras and so on. Uh, so you know, Rio has been, you know, like, like the other big miners, has been at the forefront of this issue. Uh, I guess a broader theme is that the mining industry has been through a huge journey when it comes to safety more generally. Um, I guess safety in terms of that old-fashioned sense of people yeah. having a fall and getting yeah. injured. Driving trucks and the like, yep. And they've come a huge way in dealing with that as an issue, and they all report on their performance in that regard. And I think these issues like um, workplace harassment and bullying need to be brought into that ambit. So, yep. so when they look at that... Um, Look, a couple of other things about the Goodadari opening. Um, you know, it's the 17th mine that Rio has up in the Pilbara. Mm. So there's this enormous network of mines and railways all sort of working in an integrated manner. And, and if I'm right, it's going to be doing 43 million tonnes a year in the, first, right. in the first instance. Yep, yep. So they're cranking up towards that and then looking at um, 70 million an expansion beyond that. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, I'm always impressed when you go up there and you see these giant trucks trundling along the road and there's nobody at the wheel. <laughs> so the driverless trucks, um, now driverless drills, or automated drills, um, automated water carts, you know, automated trains. Um, it's quite fascinating to see how much the industry's changed. Yeah. Uh, but the other part that really stood out for me was how the traditional owners had a really prominent role to play in the opening uh, in fact, the, the official speeches from Simon Trott and Bill Johnston lasted about five minutes. Um, the Welcome to Country, followed by a sort of dances and a cultural performance, lasted about an hour. So it's really flipped there. Mm. Um, and I think you know this is all part of the journey Rio and others are on about saying, okay, this is... Uh, We're a bit more it, serious. It's on Benjamin land, the other traditional owners. We need to take them seriously. Yeah, got it. So, uh, yeah, so, and of course, so lots of pointers about how the industry is changing. And Rio's been front and centre in that one, of course. Um, now, Mark, uh, big news revealed late last week, I think, wasn't it, by Claire Tyrrell, was uh, Lend-Lease's decision to quit the Waterbank project. People who travel across the causeway uh, will be looking at... Will have, will have looked for the past 10 years at the giant sand pit that sits by the edge of the river just as you're about to cross the causeway heading towards Vic Park. Yeah. And I know a lot of people have said to me, what is going on on that site? And uh, Lend-Lease, 10 years ago, won the rights to develop that site and they had very ambitious plans. They were going to spend you know, north of a billion dollars. They were going to build high-rise apartments. They are going to build offices. Yeah. Um, it was going to be a new hub for the CBD. I remember interviewing the bloke they brought in to lead it, and he'd, he'd actually done the, uh, the village, the Olympic village, at the London Olympics. Yeah, okay. But not this one. No. So finally, after 10 years, uh, Lynn Lisa said, okay, we're going to hand the site back to the government and then they can think about what can happen there. Now, the big issue here is it's a, quote, challenging geotechnical site. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's on it's a swampy on, bit of land. Yeah, well, it's talked about um, 20 to 30 metres of mushy layers of sediment and sand 
once described as the texture of toothpaste. Hmm. Uh, now, uh, clearly, that has been a big part of the problem there. Uh, in fact, we ran a great story back in 2019 uh, after you know Lend-Lease had been selected. They'd twice announced plans for imminent uh, commencement of development there. And then in 2019, we noticed that the government had appointed Arup, the engineering firm, to do some more geotechnical work. And we thought, okay, someone has discovered some more problems here that yeah. haven't been dealt with. And fascinating as well to compare to Elizabeth Key, because, I mean, that was spoken about in a similar way. Mm. It's down there on the, on the riverbank. Um, a lot of work needs to be done in the foundations of the buildings, um, even over on South Perth with some of the big apartments being built over there. Yep. So we don't know exactly why the Waterbank site was so much harder to work with, uh, but clearly too much. And, you know, Lendlease, they're a major international company. Yeah. And they've done some huge developments. And, you know, without... I mean, like, obviously they've got their reasons, and uh, but, it, you know, it's not like people don't build on this sort of land all over the world. I mean, it's, it's you know, th these are not um, unsolvable engineering dilemmas, but, uh, you know, but it may be just, you know, bad timing and the cost may be just, you know, the margin in it must be just too little. Uh, worth noting, the government has spent north of $100 million on the site. Uh, right. Some roadworks there around Trinity College, wow. um, but, but more fundamentally about that site preparation mm. and uh, zero return on mm. that investment so far. So far, let's hopefully so far. Um, and look, you know, let's uh, swing in there because obviously Lend-Lease uh, and that sort of news would be part of the construction sector uh, feature that we're putting them in the, in the mag out next week. Yep, look, Claire Terrell has uh, spoken to some of the big players in construction. Um, Lend-Lease has been one of them. Uh, but the big player, and this is the theme that really stands out for me, is the dominance of multiplex yeah. in that space. So Claire's caught up with Chris Palandry, who heads up uh, Multi's WA operations. And just when you look through the list of major projects around Perth, um, absolutely dominated. Um, so down at Elizabeth Quay, um, some big medical projects, some big apartment projects... They're just, they're all of them, are they? Uh, they're head and shoulders above anyone else in the market. So when you look through our list of WA's largest construction companies, it's a very, very big drop down to others like Giorgio, Doric, Pact, Perkins. Um, they're, they're not doing anything anywhere near the scale of Maltese. Yeah, right. And, of course, and the names that aren't there anymore, um, you know, Jackson went bust, yep. Pindan yep. went bust, ProBuild went bust. Yep. Um, and then also John Holland used to be a big player because the last big construction they job, construction job they did was the Perth Children's Hospital. Yes. At least in WA. They're still very big on the East Coast. Yeah, but that went a bit pear-shaped for them, didn't it? Yeah. So I think that's a, a real issue for the industry. Uh, well, I'm just thinking, Mark, you know, back in the 90s, if there was a building site in the CBD, it was multiplex. There wasn't anything else. So we sort of back to that in a way. Uh, look, I think we are. Um, or is it I'm, worse I'm not, than that? I'm, I'm not as, I wasn't sort of so close to it back then. Yeah. Um, my suspicion is that they might be even more dominant now. Yeah, got it. Than they had been in the past. Mm. Um, I mean, I think, you know, historically, multiplex were dominant um, because 
you know, rumour has it that the, the founder, John Roberts, had a very good relationship with the union movement and, you know, that kind of it was difficult for others. And uh, I remember, was it Interstruct that came in and, uh, you know, that, built QV1 and then pretty much went bust because the unions made life terrible for them. Um, and, you know, so that, so, whereas I don't imagine now that the same, uh, that multiplex is dominant for the same reason or that that's such a factor. Would I be right in saying that? I think that's a fair observation. Mm. Um, it's just they've yeah. got capital backing through Brookfield. Yeah, and certainly there's been that crack, regulatory crackdown on the construction unions. Yeah. Um, so they don't, they're not as militant as they used to be. Um, but yeah, it's amazing, isn't it, that, that Multiplex has gone from private ownership to being an ASX company to now being part of Brookfield, yeah. you know, a global investment giant. Um, but there's something at the core of that business, you know, their, their culture and their expertise that is serving them very well. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. And look, you know, speaking of construction, there's a couple of big contract wins this week. Fleur and Clough have won some significant uh, deals. Yep. And look, I think these two, um, this is sort of in the resources sector, so a little bit of a different space. Yes. Uh, but quite telling. Uh, Fleur, um, they're, a bit, they're one of these giant US engineering construction contractors. Um, we generally don't hear a lot from them, but then when there's a big project on the go, they put their hand up and uh, have a pretty good rate of winning them. Yep. Uh, Bechtel is another classic example. You know, when there's a big LNG project or a big iron ore project, you might see Bechtel in there, um, but they're certainly not a part of the Perth, Perth business community. Yeah, agreed. Um, so Fleur's come along, they've won the contract to build the uh, rare Earths refinery that Iluca Resources is developing up at Eniaba. Yep. So a $1.2 billion project, very technically complex. Right, got it. And I think for Fleur, they'd be seeing this as the first of what could be a global trend. Yeah, right, that, because that, this is about trying to get pull, um, get rare earth processing out of being exclusively a Chinese domain, isn't it? And and building it out, you know, in, in other jurisdictions and if... and and, and just because of sovereign risk, more and more countries want to see that happening. So, yeah, they're, they're trying to get a, f a foot in the door, so to speak. Yeah. Quite telling as well. So, I mean, Aluka is a very well-established blue-chip company, big mineral sands miner. Uh, they've got a lot of federal government money there, and now they've got a um, Tier 1 contractor in there as as to, to build it. Uh, interesting contrast, TNG is an ASX company, mid-cap, uh, they're looking to do a vanadium titanium project up in the Northern Territory. They've selected Clough as their preferred engineering and construction contractor. Yeah. Um, so Clough obviously as well, you know, they're, they're a big international company headquartered in Perth, um, done lots of large complex projects. And I think they'll need to draw on all of that for this particular development because uh, TNG, like many developers, has talked about the rising cost, the supply chain issues, the labour supply issues, yeah. steel's more expensive, everything's more expensive. Um, this project they had, it had been budgeted at $850 million, so big in anyone's language. Yep. And now they're hin hinting very strongly that, well, that's probably going to go north. Um, and they're using some new technology for a complex processing plant. Yep. And they've asked Clough to go away and come up with a fixed price EPC contract. <laughs> so there'll be a lot of work to be done 
before anyone signs that final contract. Yeah. So yeah. sort of quite quite a telling one. You know, it's funny, isn't it? It brings you back to even just building a house, whether you're doing cost plus or fixed price, and you know it. It can be enough to bring a builder down. It can be enough to bring the customer down. You know, it's amazing. This message is brought to you by Dr. David Honey, MLA, the leader of the WA Liberal Party. Please subscribe to WA This Week, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. David Honey every Monday that covers the most important news and updates from across our state. Search Dr. David Honey on YouTube, Facebook and LinkedIn or search for WA This Week on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Um, All right, now, look, uh, Mark, I gather Blackstone has completed the Crown takeover and confirmed John van der Whalen as WA Chair. Yeah, look, I caught up on Friday morning with uh, Chris Tynan. He's one of the senior execs at Blackstone. Um, So this was the first time they've spoken uh, publicly about their plans for Crown. Right. And uh, so, look, for starters, you know, Blackstone, they're, they're a giant global investment group. Um, they spent $9 billion buying Crown. Their total portfolio is $900 billion. Yeah, right. So what's that? 1% of their um, portfolio. 1%, yeah. So it's quite amazing. Um, a few things that stood out in an interesting way. Uh, one, they talked about some development opportunities. Um, Chris was saying to me that in the Crown Towers development, there's an area there up on the first floor. He said there's about 4,000 square metres of effectively concrete shell that never got developed. Yeah, right. Um, That was part of the original plan, and so now they're coming in as a new owner with deep pockets, Mm. and they're seeing an opportunity there. Is that like function space, or...? Well, it could be anything. It could be functions, could be food and beverage. Uh, could right. be a different type of accommodation. Hmm. Um, and Blackstone has experience across all those areas. Um, you just also talked about the big car park, saying, look, you know, there's a big opportunity there to do something. You know, early days yet. Yep. Um, and also that whole linkage between the stadium and, and the resort area. You know. I might add the car park used to have something. <laughs> the, the Burswood Dome. It did. That's right. <laughs> Hopefully something better than that one. Uh, the other bit that I found really interesting, um, as you mentioned, he confirmed that John van der Wielen, um, former HBF chief executive, uh, will be coming in as chair of Crown's Perth operations. But I asked him about this broader issue around governance of Crown, because one of the big issues that came up in the various royal commissions was the fact that in each state you had a board that supposedly was in charge of the operation there, and yet there was a parent company that was really pulling the strings. And Chris acknowledged to me, he said, the regulators have made it very clear in three inquiries that that's an unacceptable set of circumstances. But he said they also see a very clear benefit from having that network of multiple locations. Hmm. And so he made it pretty clear that this is still a work in progress as to how you work that out. Quote, um, that's an evolution of the corporate governance framework and one we're working on the implementation of. Um, He said they don't want a board in Perth that simply rubber stamps decisions made at the group level, Um, which is a nice thing to say, Mm. uh, but when push comes to shove, who's going to have the final call? Logically, it's the parent company, not the local board in Perth. This is what happened with the old structure um, and that they've clearly 
got to fine tune how this is going to happen in future. I mean, just thinking positively about that, Mark, and again, going back, and we've discussed it here, the relevance of these state boards in a national group. If I'm right in saying this, and you can correct me, the issues at state level in WA were not unique to WA. They were issues, the same issues were across the board, right? So it wasn't so much that the West Australian board wasn't doing its job. It was the national company was not playing ball by any of the regulations and it was uniformly performing wrongly. So in a sense, you have to assume that if the national body, or in this case, the global group, acts appropriately, then the, the, what's the, the local board is really, what's their job? They're not really there to distinctly put a WA flavour on things, are they? I can't imagine it. I'm, I'm sorry, I just kind of, I'm totally confused by these state-based boards. I see them as heritage issues and not really functional. But I still respect the fact that John van der Weyland, you know, like if you're going to try and do something right, you're going to get a guy like him to do it. But I just, I just get totally confused by the purpose. Yeah, and it's then a question of, and, and this was, again, a theme that came up in the various inquiries, are they there as in some sort of diplomatic, you know, yeah. flag-waving role, or do they have a real decision-making authority? Yeah. And, and that's, that's the big problem. And uh, from comments I've had back from Blackstone, that's something they're still working through. Yeah, and again, it's because it's just, it's, it's, it's unusual governance that actually has no point. But anyway... I'll leave it at that. I've said it before. Um, now, uh, look, once again, looking ahead at next week's magazine, firstly, there, well, there's my interview with the Infrastructure WA Chair, Nicole Lockwood. Thoughts on that? Yeah, look, Nicole's someone that I've spoken to quite a few times over the years, um, particularly around her work on the new port development down at Coburn Sound. Yeah. Um, but she also has a history up in the Pilbara. Um, I think she was Shire. Oh, sorry, chair. Um, Shire president. Shire yeah. president. Yeah, Roburn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but all around that, um, you know, around infrastructure, around sort of freight and logistics and so on, uh, and someone who I think is uh, playing a really key role uh, with government. Yeah. Um, I guess you said that linkage between government and industry in many ways. Yeah, look, you know, well, look, and Mark, if I can, you know, kind of get a little bit of an outline of what fascinated me and why I thought it was a good, artic- uh, a good article to pursue is because, you know, you just, first of all, you don't see someone pull together quite a streamlined career in a thing like infrastructure. So she's kind of developed a nearly unique skill. You know, you do have the John Langlons who she's replaced at chair as chair of Infrastructure WA, for instance, but John has fingers in many pies, whereas if you look at her uh, core business for the last 12 years or 13, 15 years, it's, it is infrastructure focused. And the other bit that I found really interesting, and, you know, and sorry, I should say, and her language around it, her understanding of it is, is super strong, right? She does seem to be someone, I almost get the feeling she likes to get things moving and then move out of the way. You know, she's not there to just have a job for life. And I find that really intriguing. And then, and I think that's born a little bit of her background, which you just mentioned as president of the Shire of Roeburn at the time. It's now the city of Caratha, but at the time it was the Shire of Roeburn. Um, And, you know, again, Mark, this is unique. You don't see someone go from really, honestly, very often, Shire president of, you know, something like that up there at Caratha to becoming, you know, on the 
you know, she's on the board of the NBN Co and things like that. You know, this is, you know, so it's not just, this isn't just a WA role and she's not just politically connected and getting some nice jobs. This is someone who's nationally connected. There's no partisan politics involved in this. And it's a really unique set of skills, which I think by the fact that she's built it makes her skill set even stronger day by day. Like she's sort of almost the go-to. Um... So, you know, she talked about she's building this or been asked to try and pull together this net zero infrastructure alliance. And, you know, so she's like trying to pull together another body to do another thing. Um, so oh. she just seems, you know, a bit relentless in it, actually. It's quite quite interesting. That seems to have some overlaps with another article that I wrote in the upcoming magazine, which yeah. I can preview. Go for it. I caught up with David Fife. He's recently been appointed chief executive at Synergy. And so he's got a really key role in some big changes happening there. Um, it was, what, a week ago that the government announced plans to shut the coal-fired power stations at Collie. Yep. They're now going to go and build a lot more wind farms to get a lot more renewable energy. But the key bit that sits in the middle there is getting more storage. Um, you store that renewable power. One is building big grid-scale uh, batteries. Yep. First one of those is underway at Quinana at the moment. Um, Alinta is also building some big batteries in WA. Uh, but the, the really fascinating new thing is this pumped hydro, you know, a concept that's been employed over east and elsewhere, never really been discussed a well, lot in WA. Usually places where there's mountains. <laughs> well, that's right. Um, and I caught up with GHD, and they spoke about the fact that WA's topography does not lend itself to pumped hydro. No. Um, but there's a few big hills down around Collie. Um, there's going to be a few empty coal mines. Yep. Um, which you can fill up with water, and it's right there attached to the existing power network, the big transmission lines. Yeah. Uh, so pumped hydro really is just a battery, isn't it? You, you just you pump water uphill when you've got energy to burn, so yep. to speak, or excess energy from yep. from solar or wind or whatever, and then you you let it go to drive hydroelectric power at when you need it at peak hour, presumably. That's exactly right. And then it goes to the bottom, and you pump it back up again. Conceptually, it's remarkably simple. Yes. Um, and, and it has does work elsewhere. Sure. Um, but as you say, there hasn't been much investment in it around Australia for a long time and nothing in, a, in Western Australia. Um, but it's certainly seen as being a very big part of the energy mix in WA in future. Yeah. And look, I mean, I don't fully understand the engineering. So in the sense of I don't really know how much height you need to make something. But I can imagine, you know, we've all driven a car up you know, Calamunda Hill or Greenmount Hill or whatever, and, you know, you think, well, if water was tipping down that thing at a great pace, uh, it could probably drive a turbine, I imagine. So I don't know, does it need to, you know, what is the distance that, you know, provides real energy when it comes to water? Those studies are being done right now. Yeah, uh, fair enough. And on the flip side, Mark, you know, just to be a little bit historic here, um, hydropower ran all sorts of mills and things when it was just sitting next to a river, which didn't require you know, basically enormous uh, height, you know. Um, now, Mark, uh, Gary Adsett has spoken to Optus Stadium's Mike McKenna. What did you take from that article? Yeah, look, that was just, I guess the trigger for that one is the fact that Optus Stadium is about to host a whole suite of big sporting events. Yeah. Um, obviously home to the AFL at the moment, but we've got some big international soccer teams coming to town. Uh, we've got the uh, rugby, rugby league, league state yeah. of origin, yeah. um, and people have often talked about you know, getting more events to Perth, um, enlivening the city, and these these are some examples 
of what we're doing here. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so they've had a good talk about the, the role that Optus Stadium plays um, and you know, more opportunities. Um, and the challenges uh, that it had when there was lockdowns. Well, that too, yes. Um, and, and I'll show a personal interest here. Uh, Gary said to Mike McKenna, on top of everything that you've done, what's one thing that you'd really love to have here? And the first thing he said was Major League Baseball, mm. uh, which is close to my heart, sport I love. <laughs> <Got it. laughs> um, but uh, Sydney hosted a couple of games of Major League Baseball a few years ago. Yeah. Um, there's this program where basically cities around the world bid for the right to host games. And I think that'd be fabulous. Yeah. And look, I, you know, I guess it, I was thinking about it as I was uh, reading that, that article and, and observing the photos that one thing that, rightly or wrongly, doesn't quite work for us is this issue between the round oval and the square field right you know and you think of mostly in europe the square field is the dominant uh stadium of course england has cricket um but it does leave you some lack of flexibility when it comes to you know and and we've all been to those games of you know i saw chelsea play at uh at the stadium against perth glory uh back when it first opened and you know look it was pretty good spectacle i have to say um, I remember it was raining and actually the cover was amazing. You know, I was, I was very impressed by an open-air stadium where you're not getting wet. Um, but it, you're still that little bit of distance from the game that you don't get when you go to a bespoke uh, field. And I'm just curious around because baseball fields are not massive either. Um, you know, maybe yep. you just use half of it or something, I suppose. Yep, yep. Well, you've got the diamond. Correct. As, as opposed to the square. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh, look, yes, you need to do a fair bit of work to adapt the, the field for a game of baseball. Um, but look, it worked very well in Sydney. There was great feedback from the people that attended there. Uh, that was at the SCG, yeah, got it. around stadium. So I think it could work here as well. Yeah, and, and then and that's all sort of some, sometimes it's the novelty and you're not too worried about it. Um, and look, I have to say, you do watch, you know, um, professional soccer games in Europe and they're played in athletic stadiums that have tracks running around and, you know, and the crowd is a long way from the game in that instance. So, you know, it's it's not unique to Australia. It's just one of those things I wonder about. Uh, now, finally, Mark, there's Jordan Murray's feature on the education sector in WA. Yeah, so Jordan's done a big survey around a whole range of policy challenges Uh particularly for the new federal government, uh, but also for the state government um, across both schools and universities, and ensuring that what they're delivering is, um, one, sort of commercially viable, um, and two, meets the needs of industry. Yeah. So sort of it's a good survey of that. Also got an updated listing of our major uh, uh, universities and training institutes. Uh, Curtin University sitting there as the largest university in WA. Mm-hmm. And also our updated list of WA's largest private schools. Uh, top of the list there, St Stephen's School. Um, but if you want to get details about all of our private schools, you want to get details about the fees and uh, many other details, all there on data and insights. Absolutely. Definitely go and have a look. Uh, thanks very much, Mark. Uh, I hope you enjoyed this podcast and thanks for listening. This episode of Mark My Words is brought to you by Dr David Honey. WA Liberal Leader and the Member for Cottesloe.